I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning uh, to Galatians, the book of Galatians, if you would. Uh, you see Genesis 5.16 there on the screen. That is uh, our, our jump-off point this morning as we've rested in, in Genesis, uh, excuse me, 15.16. Uh, fi- come on. It's good to be back. Uh, um, Genesis 15.6 is where we have been, uh, walking through Genesis 15. We've taken a bit of a pause uh, because Genesis 15, verse 6, did I say it wrong again? No, okay. Um, now, I'm, now I'm a little paranoid. Genesis 15, verse 6 uh, is very, very consequential to the New Testament teaching of grace. And so we've walked through it. We went to Romans chapter 4, and we thought about Paul invoking Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, to teach this idea of salvation by grace alone. The significance to faith alone for justification, which we defined, uh, justification we define as an act of grace by which God pardons the sinner and accepts him as righteous in response to a sinner's faith in the revealed word of God. And through this, we learned of the nature of grace, that there's nothing I can do to earn my way, to work my way into favor with God. And instead, it is by justification, uh, by faith alone, we acknowledge in this message, this applies not just to the way that we get saved, but the way that we live also. That's what we're talking about this morning uh, all the more. Then last time we were in Genesis 15, verse 6, we actually thought through James 2, and that was two weeks ago. Faith without works is dead, being alone. And we said, well, if salvation is by grace through faith, then what do we do with James 2? What do we do with that idea that James says that faith without works is dead, being alone? And the reason why we went there is because James also uses the example of Abraham. Acknowledging that Abraham Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness there in Genesis 15, verse 6. And yet in Genesis chapter 22, when God tells him to take his only begotten son and to sacrifice him on the altar, James says it was then that his faith was justified. And so we came to this conclusion as we taught through that passage in context, that a man is justified by faith, but that the faith that we have is proven or justified by works. From this we established that faith will always and inevitably be will we'll always and inevitably, excuse me, produce the work that is consistent with the faith that I hold. And we establish that a man can do works, moral or otherwise, outside of faith. A man can discipline himself into moral works. A man can do moral works in order to impress others or elevate himself above others or judge others or position himself in a certain way among his peers. And all of these, if it is for those reasons, all of those moral works are outside of faith and are, as Isaiah 64 says, filthy rags to God. Nothing but sin unto sin. So a man can do works outside of faith, but a man cannot have faith without it producing the works in his life that are consistent with the faith that he holds. Faith unto justification comes inevitably from the work of ceasing from my dead works and putting my trust in in Christ alone. Faith in God's provision will inevitably bear the fruit of waiting upon the Lord. Faith in God's protection will inevitably bear the fruit of not fretting over those things, and so on. And these are not, these works are not something that we believe and then we say, well, because I believe it, I'm going to produce this in myself. We'll talk a lot more about that today. But rather, These are things which, when we believe, are produced in us by God's Holy Spirit as we exercise faith. So that there's a definitive relationship between faith and works. I cannot deny the works of righteousness, but still claim faith. It does not work that way, because it cannot work that way. And so we talked about that last time in James 2. If you missed that one, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. And that brings us to this week, where we try to put all these concepts together in the final passage that we see where Paul uses Genesis 15, verse 6 as an example related to the Christian life. How do I live in the works of righteousness without living under the weight of the legal system of moral expectation? How do I keep the right mindset so that I seek under righteous works, which are right before God and man, 
but avoid the carnal motivations by which I am simply disciplining my flesh or exalting myself above others, rather than living in the fullness of the fruit of righteousness through the Holy Spirit of God. And this is where we find that final New Testament reference, the book of Galatians. Galatians is my favorite New Testament book. It's a powerful book. It's a clarifying book, and it's a book which drives to the heart of the Christian experience. That we are not born again simply so that the Holy Spirit could help us discipline ourselves into moral things. That we are not born again simply so that the Holy Spirit can make us do moral things. But rather that when we are born again, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We are given the Spirit of God, even as I talked about last week when I wasn't here. The Spirit of God does work in you that which is right. It brings about the desire for you to do right. And he that abides in Christ keeps God's commandments. His commandments are not grievous, as we thought last week in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. The Spirit of God makes us want to do right. The Spirit of God empowers us to do right. But far more than that still, when you're abiding in Christ, when you're walking in the Spirit, the Spirit of God produces that rightness in you. And this is the whole point of the book of Galatians, calling us to rightly orient ourselves to the Holy Spirit of God in order that he might produce Christ in us. And like with Romans, so too with Galatians, I'm going to walk through a summary of the context of the book. I did that in Romans. Uh, I I couldn't hit Romans 4 without giving you some context first. James, we didn't necessarily have to do that, but in, in Galatians, I've got to give you some context. So I'm going to walk through a summary of the context of the book and then bring us to the point where we can see how Galatians chapter 15, Genesis 15 verse 6 applies within the context. And the theme of Galatians is given in Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 and 7. Paul says this, he says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. So Paul states here that the people unto whom he was writing, the churches in the region of Galatia, had been removed from the grace of Christ and had been convinced of another gospel, which he says is actually not another gospel. Now the word gospel, we'll talk a little bit more about this next Sunday evening. Uh, we'll, We'll dig a little bit deeper into that word gospel, but it means good news. And we call the message of Jesus Christ the gospel because it's exactly what it is. It is, it is good news, not just to some, but as the scriptures tell it to all. For though it proclaims all men sinners, This universal leveling, this universal condemnation of all men, that our righteousnesses are all as filthy rags, that all men are sinners, this universal leveling means God's solution to Christ may come unto all men. That whereas by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned, the obedience of one, that being Jesus Christ, may make us all righteous through his blood. So all men can be saved, not by works of righteousness, but by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. But the Christians of Galatia had fallen under teaching and had been convinced of a different truth claim, what Paul calls another gospel, in that it is a competing truth claim to what Jesus taught. And he's careful to emphasize here, he calls it another gospel, but then he's careful to emphasize that it isn't actually another gospel, it isn't actually good news. And that for a couple of different reasons. First, because if righteousness is by anything other than grace, then it isn't good news, it's bad news. And the reason why is because we're all sunk if righteousness is not by grace. Because no man is in himself righteous. And if there were one man who could be righteous, then it would just destroy the curve, as we might say in in, in school terms, right? Then all the rest of us would be sunk. So the first reason why it's not another gospel is because anything outside of salvation by grace through faith is not actually good news. But the second reason is because there can and has always ever been only one way to God. 
There is only one gospel. There is only one way, and that is by grace through faith. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so only one gospel claim, only one claim of good news can actually be the true gospel. And any other gospel claim is a false gospel, or as we would say, not a gospel at all. So Paul then proceeds for the remainder of Galatians chapters 1 and 2 to give his own personal history, beginning with his deeply moral life as an exemplary Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he would call himself. Then to his experience after having accepted Christ as his Savior, contending against a works-based gospel at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. He even talked about a confrontation that he had between himself and Peter at Antioch, where Peter had been sitting with the Gentiles. And then when Jewish believers came from Jerusalem, Peter separated himself from the Gentiles and sat with the Jews because that group of Jewish believers were living out that Old Testament expectation that, that the Jews interpreted, whereby they did not eat or have fellowship with Gentiles. And so Peter had separated himself from the the Gentile believers so as to not offend his Jewish brethren. And Paul had to actually stand up and publicly rebuke Peter for that act because in doing so, he was setting an example which was outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so then after he gives this history... He says this, he warns this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 18. He says, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. To rebuild in my life a works-based order after having torn it down by grace through faith is the rebuilding of those things by which I transgress. Even if those things are, from a human or a biblical perspective, moral things, by trusting in myself, that is self-righteousness, and thus I transgress. Because, as Romans chapter 14, verse 23 says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. It doesn't say whatsoever is of a certain moral caliber is sin. It says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And this leads us to the context of the actual message today in Galatians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 3, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? So connect the dots with me. Paul says that the church has been soon removed from the gospel that they had been taught by the apostles to another gospel. And then here in chapter 3, he calls them foolish and he asks them a question. He says, having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Notice that Paul does not argue, nor would it seem that he would expect the people reading this to argue about how one is initiated into the family of God, about how one receives salvation by by grace through faith. It does not seem as though there is a debate in the churches of Galatia that when a person comes to Christ, he comes to Christ by grace through faith outside of works. It it seems as though what had happened in the churches of Galatia is that they recognized a a grace-based Gospel, a grace-based salvation that a person is saved by grace through faith. But then after people got saved, they were teaching and preaching that then you had to continue in salvation through your own good works. And Paul asks, he says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, can you then be made perfect by the flesh? If the spirit is where you began, then is the flesh going to sanctify you? Paul asks them whether they receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. And it's obvious that Paul expects them to acknowledge they received the Spirit of God by the hearing of faith. Paul does not expect any in the church, it would seem, to say that they must do the works of the law in order to receive the gospel and be born again. So then we would expect here that the controversy around the other gospel that Paul is warning about is not a controversy about works unto salvation, but 
because Paul takes for granted that they, they know that they began in the Spirit. The controversy seems to be about how we live as those who have received the Spirit of God. What does it look like to live as one who has been saved? And the question he asks, having begun in the Spirit by grace through faith, are we now made perfect by the flesh? Now, we have a definition of perfect at Legacy Baptist Church. When we think of the idea of perfection in our English vernacular today, we think of the idea of uh, flawless. In the spiritual sense, if we say a person was perfect, we might uh, give the, the synonymous idea of a person who is sinless. But that's not the idea of, the per- of perfect in our King James Bibles. When the King James Bibles use the word perfect, the word speaks of being finished or being complete, having everything that is necessary to one's nature or to one's kind. So the idea of being perfect is not the idea of being sinless or flawless. It is the idea of of finishing or completing something that has begun. So he asks, if you have begun in the spirit, are you now completed by works of the flesh? And Paul says that anyone who would believe that, having begun the relationship with God in Christ by grace through faith, that the life of the Christian is then defined by the keeping of the law or by moral deeds in order to be perfected in their Christian life, this is a foolish thing to think. And the reason why he would call it foolish is because as we look at the scriptures, what we find is that it isn't possible. That grace is from beginning to end in the Christian life. That it's the Spirit of God from beginning to end in the Christian life. Philippians 2 verse 13 says, For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And that's the idea here. It is God that works in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. It is foolishness to believe that a man who begins his life in Christ by the hearing of faith should then be completed or perfected in this life in Christ through the works of righteousness which are of the law, through his own capacity to discipline his flesh, through his own capacity to do moral things. What did we find in James 2? We perfect our Christian life the same way we entered into our Christian life. By exercising faith in God's commandments. But here's the thing, of course. As we exercise faith, as we live in faith, as we rest in faith, synonymous with the ideas that we find in John chapter 15, abide in me, abiding in Christ, synonymous with the idea that we're going to talk about in Galatians chapter 5, walking in the Spirit. As we do this thing, James chapter 2 tells us, the works will be produced in you. You will produce the works. The problem is when we fall into another gospel mindset, which is not another. And that mindset is this. Well, I'm a Christian, therefore I have to grit my teeth, I have to clench my fists, and I have to grind my way into righteousness. That's not the Christian life. Resting under the guilt and the shame of how we're just not able to measure up. Usually this comes in the form of comparing yourself to someone. I can't measure up to pastor. I can't measure up to those people, someone else in the church. I'm not quite there yet. And then you feel guilty You feel frustrated. I'm not the standard. This church isn't the standard. Christ is the standard. Good luck living up to that one. But here's the thing. I don't have to live up to it. I live in it. And Christ produces it in me. And that's the design of the Christian life. My goal, my focus, my determination, my vision is faith, follow, obey, submit. And then Christ will work in me himself. So it is certainly the case that a man, as we talked about last last time in James 2, a man walking in faith will walk in righteous works. But it is foolish to say that these righteous works are the thing that pleases God. What pleases God is the faith that I'm living in that then is validated in the production of those righteous works. 
The righteous works are the natural side effect of the man who is walking by faith. And perhaps it is that you can see here the wisdom of God in this design. Because any man can produce moral works. We talked about that in James 2. Through discipline, unto self-righteousness, any man can produce moral works. As a matter of fact, I think it's comfortable to say that by society standard, we could say that certainly other faith systems outside of Jesus Christ probably do a better job at producing moral works than even biblical Christianity. And people might look at that and say, well, how can that group, which is producing such good moral works, be wrong and this one be right? Well, because it's not about moral works. It's about what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And that man who is seeking to produce in himself those moral works through discipline, through self-righteousness, through these things, utterly carnally, will strive against the guilt of his own incapacities all the days of his life. And that's not how God has designed the Christian to live. When God talks about a life reflective of joy and peace, when Paul speaks of the idea of our consciences being purged from our works, the idea here is a a, a concept of freedom. And that freedom is not found because we find in ourselves moral sinlessness. That freedom is found in the reality that we know that it is ours not to produce in ourselves righteousness, but to walk by faith and allow Christ to do his work in us. So Paul continues, verses 4 through 11 of Galatians 3. Have you suffered so many things in vain? If it yet be in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified in the, by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. So Paul reasons with the, these readers of Galatia. He says, you received the spirit by the hearing of faith. And he says, those that minister to you in the church, those that are exemplifying the spiritual gifts in the church, they're spiritual gifts, right? That's what they're called, spiritual gifts. They're exercising them, obviously, through the Spirit. Although our churches today, maybe not so obviously, because the churches of our day have primarily replaced the power of the Spirit with the power of emotions, with economic capacity, or with empathy. But contrary to popular belief, the exercising of spiritual gifts in the church is through the Spirit of God. Why then, Paul says, if you began in the Spirit... And those that minister among you minister through the Spirit. Why then would you believe that you can live in the works of the law? Live in the righteousness accomplished simply through disciplining your flesh. This is not a spiritual idea, Christian. It's a religious idea, but it's not a spiritual idea. And let me take a moment to clarify what I mean by that. We have a huge wing of culture today that calls themselves spiritual, but not religious. And this is not what I'm talking about here when I say that this is a religious idea but not a spiritual idea. Spiritual but not religious is pagan foolishness. In modern cultural terms, the idea of spiritual but not religious means that a person regards things which are unseen while not attaching those things in any sort of way to a standard for how one lives their life. The spiritual but not religious man rejects any expectation of the living God while claiming fealty to unseen forces which exert control over him. He recognizes that there are unseen things and things he can't explain, but he refuses to pinpoint them in a manner by which to submit himself to them and commit himself to those truth claims. And this is pagan incoherence. A man who wants to have his cake and eat it too. A man who cannot ignore that there are things which exist beyond the realm of the material, 
but he rebelliously refuses to accept the truths of the unseen realm reflected by Jesus Christ. It's a position of arrogance whereby a man seeks to relieve himself of his knowledge of the accountability of God because he knows that there is something more out there. So he acknowledges the existence of the unseen, therefore he is spiritual, but he defines it by his own mind rather than by the living word, therefore he rejects religion. And this is tragic. And the reason why it's so tragic is because I love that word spiritual. I use that word a lot. For those of you that know me, I use that word a lot. And I use that word a lot because when the Bible talks about what we are to be, the word spiritual is the thing that is used. We are called to be spiritual people, but not by the spiritual but not religious definition. A spiritual man is not a man who accepts the existence of the immaterial but on his own terms. That's what spiritual but not religious typically means when I meet those people. I'm going to, ex- uh, I'm going to accept the immaterial world or the spiritual world, but I accept it only on my terms. Uh-uh. Much to the contrary. Paul defines the spiritual man when he's talking about the spiritual man in 1 Corinthians as opposed to the carnal man. When he's talking about the spiritual man in Galatians, he defines the spiritual man as the man who accepts the existence of the immaterial by faith in Christ's word alone and thus submits himself to the spirit as his exclusive means of living life before God. He accepts the truth claims and aligns himself with the truth claims by faith and that man is a spiritual man. Now this is very different from the religious man per se, who regardless of which God he might claim, seeks to earn and incur the favor of that God through his own material capabilities, his own material capacities. And let's briefly clarify this as well. We want to be spiritual, and as as I said this, as I gave this idea, that moral works is a religious idea, but not a spiritual idea, Don't let that swing us the other direction. If spiritual is here and religious is here, we want to be careful that we're not swinging too far one way or the other on the pendulum. Well, we're supposed to be spiritual, so we reject the religious. Or, well, we, we, uh, we don't like the spiritual but not religious crowd, so we're going to embrace the, 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 the religious idea. Well, let's, let's, let's find some balance here. Religion is a good thing. But religion is insufficient on its own. Just like spirituality is a good thing, but spirituality does not exist on its own. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. Not the kind that sucks up dust, kids. If you don't know what that means, talk to your parents and they can give you a science lesson. Religion is not capable of being an end unto itself. Religion is a framework that is intended to guide us unto an end, namely, spirituality. Religion directs us unto spirituality. And the reason why we need religion is because we are not just spiritual. You and I are spiritual beings. We have a spirit. It is eternal. It will go somewhere, either to heaven or to hell. When we die here, that's not the end. It's only the next step. However, we do exist in this thing called a body, and that is physical. And right now, that body is a bit of a frustration to us, right? It's the thing that aches in the morning. It's the thing that, 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 that allows me to get a stub toe or a, or a hangnail. It's the thing that I fight against with temptation so that Paul says in Romans chapter 7, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Yet simultaneously, we have been placed into these bodies and we exist in them by God, which means we do have this thing, this physical realm within which we interact. It's going to be the whole point of baptism today. Today we have, I believe, eight people getting baptized. We'll find out when we get down there. I think it's eight. We have eight people getting baptized. And as we think through this idea of baptism, we understand that there's no direct spiritual efficacy, but because we live in this human body and because we are material people, we find that baptism links some physical action to what has happened inside of us, to a spiritual reality. And this is something that is valuable for the human. Because by linking something spiritual to something physical, it gives us something tangible to grab a hold of that leads us into the spiritual. That when I think back to the day that I was buried with him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of Christ, uh, of life, 
by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I think upon the day that I publicly made a profession of that by being baptized, that symbolic baptism that shows what I have done in my heart. You can't see what happened in my heart, but you can certainly see when I submit myself to water baptism. And that connects me to what I've done. That connects you to what I've done. Because we live in a physical body. Religion is that thing. It is that framework that guides us into that relationship with Christ, that guides us into spirituality. But when a person rejects the truth of Christ, then religion becomes an end rather than the means. And this is the problem. When a person steps outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, they can still do all of the religious things, but the religion becomes an end in and of itself. And thus the religion becomes idolatry. And this is where religion turns into self-righteousness. This is where religion becomes callous or confused, becomes futile, becomes judgmental, becomes evil. That's not the fault of religion itself. That's the fault of men who have made religion the end rather than the means to an end. But what did James say about religion in James 1.27? Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. What does religion do for us? What is religion intended to be for us? It is a framework that we place into our lives and we do it through things such as church. We do it through setting up things in our lives specifically under two ends, that we, would be, that we would remember what the spiritual calling upon ourselves calls us to do, which is to take care of the needy and to live in biblical separation from the unbelieving world that is around us. And that is what religion serves to do for us. It keeps us focused upon the things that we're supposed to do for others and the manner in which we are supposed to live separated. And so we build a religious framework not to be an end in and of itself, but as a means by which to maintain a spiritual existence. Spirituality without religion, pagan foolishness. Religion without spirituality, pagan foolishness. They come together and it is life in Christ. And this is exactly what Paul was warning about in Galatians chapter 3 about religion. The man who sees salvation is by the Spirit. The man who sees that God's gifts are by the Spirit. But then he goes about to establish his own righteousness before God through deeds of righteousness apart from the Spirit. And that's incoherent. Religion at the expense of the Spirit. Religion in opposition to the Spirit. And in response to this mindset, Paul says this, verses 6 through 8. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Genesis 15, we find this week, is as much prophetic as it is historic. God, seeing that all men would be justified by faith, preached the same gospel that we have unto Abraham, that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and Abraham received the revealed word of God, and Abraham believed it, and he was declared righteous. He never earned his righteousness. He could not earn it any more than you or I can. Much to the contrary, God told Abraham that there was coming a day When his seed would justify the unrighteous, Abraham believed the revealed word of God and he, just like you, was justified by faith. He was declared righteous on that day because Paul says in verse 11, the just shall live by faith. Notice it doesn't say the just are given life by faith. The Bible says the just live by faith. Faith is not just a context of salvation. You don't step into salvation by faith and say, okay, God, thanks for your Holy Spirit. I'll take it from here. No, you live by faith. Faith is the lifeblood of the Christian. Because outside of faith, you can't be spiritual. Paul then talks about the idea of Abraham's seed being uh, Christ. We're going to address that next time we're in Genesis. It'll be a few weeks here. But we're going to ask, who is Abraham's seed? There'll be a final controversy, if you will. 
before we move on and hopefully we pick up a little bit of steam here in Genesis. I know we've, we've, been, uh, we've been slow, um, but I hope it's at least been beneficial. And then Paul asks, well, what was the point of the law then? Say, all right, so we were given this law, the, the Old Testament law is there, and it's all of these things that God expected, the Ten Commandments, the, the, the various uh, laws that we find in the, in the Pentateuch, and, and then the, the outworking of them throughout lives, and we see the benefits of them, and, and we acknowledge that God has designed the world around them. So then what, what is the value of the law if, if Paul, as Paul teaches it, so, so explicitly, we are redeemed from that law. If the just have always lived by faith, then why did God give the law? And we've talked about this already also. The Bible says the law was added because of transgressions to regulate men until grace was revealed. Jesus had to be born in time. He had to be crucified in time. There's a system. Jesus, the Bible says, was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It was always in God's plan, but there was a time where he came into the world. God had ordained that time, and before that time, there needed to be something in place. A measure of regulation until the fullness of the time would come. The law was intended to reflect man to man his own incapacity to be righteous. God says, I'm going to yoke myself to this people. I'm going to covenant myself to this people. I'm going to give them a law that if they live in it, if they obey it, they will live in it. And not one of them ever did. Not one of them ever could. So that by the time Jesus showed up, what should have been evident to all men? That they cannot keep this law. They cannot attain unto the righteousness that God demands. Proving all men are sinners. And Paul says... That was the purpose. Notice verses 23 through 29 of Galatians 3. But what faith, uh, but, but before faith came, excuse me, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterward be revealed. Whereunto the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed. Well, again, we'll talk about that next time. And heirs according to the promise. The law was the schoolmaster, Paul says, to contend for the need to be justified by faith. To live in faith. Because I can't live in this flesh and please God. It doesn't matter if you have the Holy Spirit indwelling. You cannot live in this flesh and please God. You must walk by faith if you're going to please God. If faith is what pleased God unto justification, then why would we think anything but faith would please God unto sanctification? Now, we've already laid out what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that faith exists to the exclusion of works. That was James 2. We already covered that one. Faith produces the works. And I'm going to keep reiterating that because I don't want this to get confused. People are going to walk away having not, uh, having, I'm always amazed at what, if I, if I ask someone, tell me what I told you today. Sometimes I'm, I'm amazed at what I hear. I didn't realize I said that, but, um, but, but I'm trying to be very clear with this. This message, I hope nobody walks away from this message saying, oh, pastor said I don't have to, I, I, that, 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 that righteousness doesn't matter or that good works don't matter. No, I didn't say that. Well, pastor said that religion doesn't matter. No, I didn't say that either. And pastor said that, that all it takes is being spiritual. Well, I didn't say that either. What we said is we walk by faith and faith produces works. That the spiritual man is a man that pairs religion with spirituality into the manner in which he lives his life. Produced by the Spirit of God in us as we walk by faith. So Paul acknowledges in chapter 4, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we... When we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of the world. 
But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth his spirit, the spirit of his son, into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So Paul says in the early years of the life of a son, he looks, he, he looks no different than a servant. Uh, thinking back to a time when there were men who, uh, feudal lords, that sort of a time, where you had a man and he had a son and that son was young. And in that time when the son was young, uh, he had no responsibilities. He was an heir, but that was it. He was simply the heir. He had no responsibilities. He was under tutors. So you'd have the servant and the servant would be busy about doing what servants do. And you'd have the Lord and the Lord would be busy about doing what the Lord was doing. But both of their sons would be doing the same thing, which is they'd be sitting under tutors and governors being taught. And they maybe didn't look that much different. And depending on who the feudal lord was, maybe he even allowed his son to play with the sons of the servants. So that they were good friends growing up. And they they did the same things and they thought the same things. And maybe they even learned the same things. And that makes sense when everyone was young. But then there would come a day when the servant would grow into his servant role and he would take up the role of a servant. And the son of the master would become the master himself. And those are very, very different. And the the same way, Paul says, all men began under the bondage of sin that they might learn the same lessons, the same lessons of incapacity. Now, as Paul speaks to a certain group, perhaps we might understand Jews among them as he speaks to the concept of the law. Yes, the law was a tutor. The law was a governor. The law uh, exhibits those things by which God has designed the world that if a man lives in them, he will find that measure of moral success. The unbeliever and the believer alike can live in the moral success of the expectations of the moral law. That is not something that's exclusive to the believer. But there comes a day when certain men recognize that the law was a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ and they accept Christ and they step into an inheritance. And this fundamentally distinguishes them. It is different. In like manner, we follow a religious system. It helps us learn how to do what is right. We, we, we seek to learn how to live morally, and even uh, we, we seek to discipline ourselves to avoid the pitfalls of sin. But there is a fundamental difference between what we have and what any other moral system might hold. We are redeemed from the law. God sent forth His Son into our hearts. We do not just serve the design of God as a sovereign. We serve the design of God as the sons of God. Heirs of God through Jesus Christ. And as such, we relate ourselves to God in a different way. To the purely religious man, a superior way. And all of this until the end that we find in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Paul writes, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well, he said. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. So Paul uses circumcision as an example. And apparently within this false gospel, the idea, very similar to what we see in the book of Acts, Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, where it seemed as though a subset of of the Jews in Jerusalem were saying that when a person accepted Christ as their Savior, they then had to submit themselves to the Jewish law. They had to get circumcised. They had to uh, um, uh, not eat blood uh, in their meat. They had to observe the Sabbath days and the holy days and everything else. And Paul came and he contended vehemently against that, proving through men such as Titus that the Holy Spirit could fall upon those who had not been circumcised. And Peter advocated for the same position and they, and, and they came to that conclusion. And then Paul writes to this Galatian churches and he advocates for this very thing. That if you think that by aligning yourself with some measure of the works of the law in order to maintain your rightness with God, that you are somehow doing so, that you're fallen from grace. This is not grace. And so he says, stand fast in your liberty. This liberty here is not from sin. 
The liberty here that Paul is saying, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free, is not liberty from sin, it's liberty from self-righteousness. It's liberty from having to feel like you have to live up to some moral code. If in consistency with the gospel you stand fast in faith, a faith that is not only designed to justify but also to sanctify, don't just find life in faith, live in faith. Now, Paul is not saying here that anyone who got circumcised is no longer saved. That's a message for another day. You've heard me say many, many times uh, that salvation by grace through faith, when you've accepted Christ as your Savior, there's nothing in the Scriptures that, that teaches with any sort of clarity that a person can lose their salvation once they have accepted it. The very nature of the idea of being born again. Jesus says you must be born again. A person cannot become unborn. A person can die, but a person cannot become unborn. Jesus said in John chapter 10 that when, a, when he, he uh, receives someone, he says that, that, that um, uh, he places him into his hand and no man can pluck him out of his hand. No man can pluck him out of his father's hand. We see in the scriptures numerous statements of the reality that if a person has accepted Christ, they've accepted by grace through faith. And if it's grace, it is no, not of works. How can a person who did not deserve or did not earn or was never worthy of stepping into salvation because it's by grace, find some measure of unworthiness by which they can then fall out of salvation. It makes no sense. It's not biblically consistent. So that's not what I'm saying today. That's not what Paul is saying. But what he is saying is this, that as you seek and persist to demand that a person who has begun in the spirit, who has accepted Christ by grace through faith, then align himself with certain Uh, moral standards in order to be counted a Christian, you are no longer in a realm of grace. You're in a realm of works. That is inconsistent with grace as it stands. Person can get circumcised. The Jews wanting to continue along that tradition, just fine, but don't demand it. Can't demand it. Can't require it. The gospel doesn't require it. And this is where Paul then exhorts that the liberty of faith is not designed as an occasion unto the flesh, but designed so that we might be free to love and serve one another. This is liberty. What I've been preaching you today is a concept that the Bible calls liberty. That the, the, the weight of the handwriting of the, of the laws that, that had been against man, recognizing the righteousness of God, we have been freed from this. Our conscience has been freed. We step into the liberty of the children of God, but that that liberty that we are given is not a liberty intended to allow us then to say, oh, well, I have grace, so I'll continue in sin. I have grace, so I can live how I want. That is not why Christ has freed your conscience. Christ has not freed your conscience to live for yourself. Christ has freed your conscience so that you might be free to love and serve one another. Christ has freed your conscience so that you don't have to spend all of your time in the church comparing yourself to others, hoping and looking to make sure you're the most righteous among them. And instead, your conscience is free to be right before God, to stand before God in freedom. And now I can look at my brother and instead of comparing myself to him, I can love him. I can serve him. I can dedicate myself to him rather than to trying to one-up him or judge him or despise him for what he has that I do not. That's the liberty of spirituality. Faith is what invokes the power of the Holy Spirit unto a life of godliness, not a call to walk in moral conformity. Galatians 5.16, this I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The key to fulfilling the lust of the flesh, the key to not fulfilling the lust of the flesh, is not self-discipline. It's walking in the Spirit. Discipline is not a bad thing. I'm not saying discipline is a bad thing. But it's not the power of God, Christian. Moral conformity. Morality is not a bad thing. But morality is not the power of God. Walk in the Spirit. And because the Spirit and the flesh are in opposition one to another, if you walk in the Spirit, it is impossible that you will fulfill the lust of the flesh. We fulfill the the times that you are fulfilling the lust of the flesh are the times in your life where you are not walking in the Spirit. 
And if you're walking in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Just as we saw last week in that question, how do I know I'm saved? Well, you know when you start to see the Spirit of God producing in you the works of the Spirit. So, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 tells us what those are, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. As we submit ourselves to Christ, we walk in the Spirit, we abide in Christ, this is what comes out of us. And that's the Christian life. So then Paul exhorts in verses 24 and 25. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And this will be our simple application as we close today. Those who are in Christ have crucified their flesh with the affections and lusts. Within you, there's a battle raging. The minute you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were given the Spirit of God, but your flesh did not go away. Your flesh is still there. The idea of your sin nature, it's still there. And the way that I I describe it to people when I sit across from them at the jail for my chaplaincy is this. The beast you feed is the one that's going to grow. You feed the flesh, the flesh will grow. Get stronger. You feed the spirit, the spirit will get stronger. You start starving the flesh, the flesh will get weaker. That's what we're called to do. Crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts. Walk in the spirit. The spirit grows in our lives. It gets stronger in our lives. Now, when you starve an animal, the animal's going to get angry. The flesh doesn't want to die. The flesh will fight against that death. So it's going to take faith, determination, quite possibly accountability as you seek to starve that flesh. Crucify that flesh. But the essence is this. I walk by faith. I align myself with God's precepts. I dedicate myself to them. And as I do so, I reject the flesh by nature. And, in do, and, and, and as I do that, the Spirit of God produces in me His works unto that righteousness that we seek. So that if we live in the Spirit, Christian, we all ought also to walk in the Spirit. Abraham was a man who was justified by grace through faith. Abraham believed God And it was counted unto him for righteousness. That was a template, a prophetic template that that applies even to us today, that we believe God and it is counted unto us for righteousness. That does not mean we have no, uh, no, no obligation, if you will, unto works. For indeed, our faith is justified by works as we live in them. But where do those works come from? They come from the Spirit of God. That as we crucify our flesh and we walk in the Spirit, as we abide in Christ, as we take, as we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, then the Spirit of God produces in us those nine virtues. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And we find ourselves in that place, both of liberated conscience, free to serve and love one another, and simultaneously, the good works reflected in pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father. So may our exhortation this morning be that of Paul here in Galatians 5. Christian, if you live in the Spirit by grace through faith, let's walk in the Spirit as well. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.